Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So imagine it's 2121 and a whole bunch of historical reenactors are getting together to do a reenactment of the January 6th riot uh, at the U.S. Capitol 100 years before. Well, the first question is, are robots allowed to participate? That'll be like the only question anybody ever asks in 2121. But the other question is, how do you tell the story? Because even now, there's not a commonly agreed upon narrative. Today's show is all about historical reenactors. It is a little bit about that question of commonly agreed upon or disagreed about narratives. It's also remarkably about archaeologists who are trying to reenact what it was like to make tools and other items that very early peoples might have owned and used. Also, who provides the reenactors with their threads? and their thread for their threads. All of that and more will be covered. I was younger than you are now When I was given my first command I led my men straight into a massacre I witnessed their deaths firsthand I made every mistake and felt the shame rise in me And even now I lie awake Knowing history has its eyes on me History has its eyes So today we're going to talk about historical eyes, the historical gaze, uh, but played out in the present because there has been for many years a vogue for historical reenactment. I mean, I guess you can sort of take it back 150 years ago to the idea uh, of the tableau vivant, you know, which you you might have maybe even in 1850 in some, you know, town centennial or something. I clearly haven't thought this through very well, <laughs> but it seems to me anyway that it's a little bit like that. But that was, of course, people kind of standing still dressed in period garb. This is very different. The historical reenactment, obviously, as most of you probably know, is people gathering somewhere dressed as authentically as they can be and equipped with as historically authentic uh, equipment as they can possibly obtain, and then reenacting something. It is, as far as I can tell, about 90%, 90% of the time it's a, a battle. But, you know, maybe once in a while they write the Constitution or something. I'm not sure. That's why we have guests on the show. And let's get going with that. I do want to say that the second segment of the show today is going to be what is referred to now in all of national public radio as the classic Lily Tyson pivot, because we're going to pivot away from the reenactor's as they are commonly understood, and towards archaeologists who are now trying to figure out, well, what what was it like for Paleolithic people to build Paleolithic tools? Well, let's try to build some ourselves and see. It's, this is all very fascinating stuff. Let's get going with the reenactors. Brad Kiefer is with us, a professor of history at Kent State University, who's also an active Civil War and colonial period living historian. And um, first of all, Brad, welcome to our show. 
Thank you, Colin. Glad to be here. So I have in my usual charmingly fumbling way attempted to describe what historical reenactment is, but I'm sure you could do a better and very concise job. No, you did a pretty good job, actually. Um, You know, modern reenacting appeared around the time, at least Civil War reenacting. Now, we probably shouldn't get too pigeonholed here Mm -hmm. because there are people reenacting all kinds of things. I mean, somewhere out there, there are people doing Roman legionnaires, Mm -hmm. bless their hearts. Um, So the start of reenactment usually is triggered by the need to remember the event being being reenacted. So even though there were probably guys doing some sort of play, playing out battles in the decades after the Civil War, for example, the the real desire to reenact the Civil War comes out of the centennial when the last of the veterans are gone. So there's there's a connection that's made, I think, between particularly military reenactors, but all reenactors, between the people they're portraying and and themselves and the community they build around that portrayal. Uh, and some of, you know, for Civil War reenactors, we're reaching back to, to these idealized veterans uh, and trying to recreate the war that they described in their memoirs. Right. And so this thing, this kind of thing probably ebbs and flows a little bit. Uh, I would imagine uh, that it, it flowed, um, particularly around the time of, well, let's just play uh, A1 Cat. I think it probably flowed rather than ebbed around the time of this. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. And lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. So, Brad, yeah, in the 1960s, we get the centennial. In the 1980s, there's also this incredible Civil War boom. It's led by uh, Ken Burns. That, of course, yep. is the famous Sullivan Ballou letter. You're hearing, by the way, David McCullough, uh, who recently died, the great historian David McCullough, read that letter. But so suddenly, wow, it's just in everybody's – It's Vietnam was supposedly the living room war. But for a while, the American Civil War yep. was the living room war. And, and that – that film came out right at the tail end of the 125th anniversary of the war. And, and those 125th reenactments were some of the biggest that had ever been held. So the hobby was already rolling pretty well in the late 80s. And then, yeah, the Civil War propelled it. Glory, which used a bunch of reenactors and actually recruited uh, uh, African-Americans for the reenactment community, was another push. And then by the time we get to the early 90s, we have Ted Turner's Gettysburg that has a cast of thousands literally made out of reenactors. And so for the next 10 years, the the reenactment community grew, the, the, the scenarios, the battles grew, they got sponsors, they got hooked up with preservation. 
And yeah, that was the golden age, the golden age of reenacting. And, we, and, and when we say golden age, and when we say some of the largest reenactments, I mean, forget about Ted Turner for a second. We're talking about reenactors just for their own sake, reenacting, say, the Battle of Gettysburg, and yep. you've got thousands of people there? I believe it was the 135th Gettysburg that had close to 20,000 participants. <laughs> <laughs> That's including civilians, of course, and all, and the sutlers. But we we saw Pickett's Charge. I'm a Union reenactor, so I'm a fire, I'm up there on the ridge. We saw Pickett's Charge done with roughly ten thousand Confederate infantry. Wow, that is something. And yeah, it was quite the spectacle. But even the 125th, there was a, a guy named uh, uh, Foley who made classic images videos, and they're all real released now by an outfit called Lionheart Videos. And he filmed really well uh, the 125th sequence. And his Gettysburg had, there were 11,000 in 1988. Uh, and that almost doubled then by the time we did the, the 135th in, in 1998. And that was the peak. The 135th really had the numbers where, where you were talking seven, eight, ten thousand participants. So another thing that ha has happened recently, and I, I'm not suggesting that history and historical reality haven't been contested over, over the decades, but we seem to have been mo moving into a much more contentious area where even formerly commonly agreed upon narratives are argued about and there are questions, and these questions spill over not in, just into reenactments, but so-called living history. People go to an actual site of a former plantation, and sometimes there's a pretty chilling narrative about what it was really like to be a slave and a lot of information is given there. Some people don't want that. They want to go to the plantation right. that looks more like on with the wind and everybody's pretty happy. Uh, but but everything's like that, right? I mean, if you're going to do a reenactment, you're going to charge into battle in some cases with a battle flag from the Confederacy and that is just right. loaded up, totally freighted with, with all kinds of contemporary social stuff. So what does that do? What does all that I don't know, nervous tension do for the, or to the reenacting community? Well, at the time where things really got hairy, around 2016, 17, uh, after Charlottesville, there was a lot of concern that, that there was going to be a real sort of violent public reaction. And the Confederates kind of played it cool. Um, you know, there are other flags that units can carry that are less contentious than the battle flag, regimental flags, state flags, even the Confederate national flag early in the war was pretty unpretentious. Um, our concerns peaked uh, in 2000, I believe 2016, at the Cedar Creek reenactment in Middletown, Virginia. It was an annual event held on the actual battlefield where somebody found a pipe bomb and everybody freaked out. There was a lot of speechifying among reenactors about how we needed to stick together and protect one another and, and how this was also inappropriate. As it turned out, and we didn't know this until two years later, it wasn't, it wasn't outside forces. It was an inside job. It was some disgruntled guy who, you know, who sabotaged his own hobby, hmm. Wow, <laughs> which, which was just shockingly, you know, mind boggling. But there were, you know, there after that incident, there were, you know, there were some real concerns. They haven't really played out. Um, I like to say that our job as Civil War reenactors is to portray the military war. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't civilians or sanitary commission and all kinds of other impressions that people do. But for our purpose, we interpret the war, the battlefield, the weapons, the lifestyle, the soldiers. And doing that doesn't excuse the fact that the Confederates were fighting for a pretty bad cause, but it allows them to portray Confederates in a way that that sort of focuses on the army rather than the cause. Right. I mean, in other words, you know, we, we I think we'd think differently about John C. Calhoun than we would think about an average Confederate soldier who's, you know, right. in his regiment for, for whatever reason. So I want to go back to uh, that initial centennial boom in the 60s. So that's where maybe people like you start to get attracted to it. Now, the problem with this is that it's not the, not the 1960s or the, it's not the 1980s or whatever anybody got involved. And so I'm wondering about the demographic issue here because the kids come along and they've got other options, including cosplay. You know, they can, right. <laughs> they can go to Comic-Con and dress up as their favorite Avenger uh, or, or whatever. And, and I'm wondering whether, uh, just as is, this is the case with any prolonged war, getting fresh young bodies uh, into uniform is a problem. It, it is. The, the hobby is aging and proportionally shrinking because of that. Look, you know, in the 1960s, I was a grade school kid and I read Bruce Catton and I read the, the sort of basic works, Billy Yank and Johnny Reb by Bell Wiley. And a lot of my contemporaries have. So we all came into reenacting with this very idealized sense of the war and the veterans and the soldiers. Now, the simplest answer to your question is that the, the people who are still recruiting a significant number of young folks are bringing them to the reenactments as kids. They, they're, they're family camp reenactors, right? So rather than have a, a stripped down military camp at a big reenactment, you'll find a a village full of canvas, full of dining flies and furniture, period, enough. And kids. And they so they raise their replacements from pups. <laughs> they literally raise them up from kids. Well, I, I don't know how, what percentage of them will ultimately rebel against that and say, oh, good, I'm free. I don't have to do this anymore. But oh, I, I'm sure a yeah. bunch of them do. Oh, absolutely. But but there it is a pipeline that, that a lot of units like the one I belong to don't have. Right. Yeah, so we're on a family reunion. Yeah. Can we talk about um, what we might think of as method acting? So, you know, I don't know if I were a, a Revolutionary War or American Civil War reenactor, I think I'd be showing up in some kind of pretty comfortable RV and, you know, I'd get out, get my uniform on, do my thing, get back in, you know, open up a nice Chardonnay. Uh, but really, <laughs> if you're going to do this, you know, and there I know there are some people who feel like they've got to march 18 miles to the battle in really crappy shoes, eating a hard tack or whatever the equivalent right. of that is now. So can you talk a little bit about that, the sort of people who kind of parachute in versus the people who are really method actors about this? Back in 1999, Tony Horowitz wrote yes. Confederates in the Attic, and he did a beautiful job of separating the hardcores, as he called them, um, who are the guys that right wanted to sleep in the dirt and, and wear their uniform for a week and eat hardtack. And the mainstream reenactors, often referred to as the Farbs, who, who didn't necessarily want to suffer. To me, there's always been an in-between. You know, I'm going to sleep in the tent on a ground. I'm going to eat as, you know, the food that we can cook that's period enough. 
to me, reenacting is a visceral experience. And if you don't experience a little misery and a little hardship and sleep in the cold a couple of times and endure the heat, you're missing part of the experience. You know, so the, the RV reenactors are, are missing really the whole point. Sure, they're, they're, they're on the battlefield. They increase the numbers. A lot of those guys are artillerists. So they drag their cannons on the back of an RV or back a pickup truck and tend to not necessarily need to do what the infantry does, which is go sleep in the dirt. So if you're, if you're cheating completely, you're missing it. I don't think you need to be a hardcore roll around in the dirt and, and, and be miserable all the time. And those guys are so persnickety, we call them stitch counters, right? That they're always going, eh, that, that's not authentic. Those buttons didn't go on that coat. Nobody likes them. No. <laughs> By the Nobody way, likes at the end of the show today, we're going to be talking to um, Ian Graves, is one of the people who provides the thread that they stitch with uh, and all the other stuff too. Uh, yeah. he's, uh, he is one of the, the suppliers of historical reenactment garb. No, I want to sort of have you take off your union cap and put on your historian hat. Uh, and I know all the historians have a historian hat that they wear. Uh, we and, do. And, and so just talk about, I mean, this is one piece of understanding history. But I would assume from your perspective, it's only one piece of understanding history. It's not a way to come to some kind of fuller understanding of history. Right. And I would go, I would go a little further. I would say that reenacting is very much a mix of history and memory. Because the, the, the memories that reenactments are built on is are, are very selective ones. Some of them a little bit flawed, right? The lost cause is a memory structure, not a historical one. And so when you see the veterans in a very idealized way, those old guys shaking hands at the wall, right? 1913, these old codgers all go to the wall in Gettysburg and they shake hands. That's the idealized memory that we are, that inspires us, right? That we can we can celebrate the reunion of North and South by reliving the lives of these guys, reliving their experiences, remembering them, uh, holding them up, talking about their regiments. And so it's history and it's really good. Civil War reenactors know military history. Many of them are very well read. But yeah, they're not historians. They're not theorists. They're not placing what they do into some sort of larger context. As a historian, I know exactly where it fits. And I've written a couple of things for scholarly sources that talk about reenacting and battlefield preservation, which is a real interesting sort of spinoff. And again, speaks to our archaeologists who are on later, right? The whole idea of preserving and, and identifying artifacts and landscapes are artifacts. Uh, and, and then the, just the, the, the sentimentalized, the nature of all of this and the memory function. And so, yeah, it can make it real complicated if, if, if I want to, um, but it comes down to what people want to remember about the war and what they want to experience. And so I want you to take your historian hat off, put the reenactor hat on, and don't, now tell me, what, what describe the moment that makes it all feel worth it, all right? Because you are, uh, you're not, you're not, it sounds like you're not an RV reenactor. You're, you are somewhat committed to some of the physical discomfort and perhaps actual suffering uh, that goes into this. Uh, it's not something you do just to have fun all day long. So right. what, describe the moment where you're thinking, this is worth it. This is why I do this. You know, ironically, one of those moments was my very first major reenactment. 
in, 2000, in 1989, uh, the Battle of Spotsylvania uh, in 1864. And I'm brand new. I'm green as grass, man. And and the, 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 the attack, the big climax of the reenactment of the battle is an, an attack on the Confederate position called the Mule Shoe. Uh, which was a trench system, and and the tench, the attack was launched at, at the crack of dawn. Literally, we marched in the dark to be in position. Four thousand Yankees in columns, and we hit that thing as the sun was coming up. And the battle that broke out was the most realistic, fierce, and, and the whole time the sun is rising. Man, I got I get goosebumps just thinking about it. That that hooked me. I mean, you talk about being hooked. About 35 years later, I've been to a lot of good reenactments. The cornfield at Antietam, where you wade into a standing cornfield at, at daybreak. Um, the sunken road at Antietam. Just so realistic and, and you know, memorable. But that first one, man, I was hooked. All right, Brad Kiever, you're just a great guest on this subject. Professor of History at Kent State University. Kent State University is going to play a major role in the show today uh, because our next guests are also from there, uh, also an active Civil War and colonial period living historian. We're going to take a little break, and, and we will come back, and we will meet the people who do the Paleolithic stuff. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Yes, here comes the hammer and all the other Stone Age tools. There just aren't really great rap singles about them. Uh, But where do they come from? Where did they come from? What was it like to try to make one? 
Uh, and for that, we have, and I swear to God, Lily Tyson, the producer of this episode, did not walk around the Kent State campus just buttonholing people. It just has worked out that we have a lot of Kent State participation today. So joining us is Metin Aaron, uh, associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Kent State University, where he's also the co-director of the Kent State University Experimental Archaeology Laboratory. Also with us, Michelle Beber, uh, an associate, I could do the same thing all over again, basically, associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Kent State University, where she is also the co-director of the Kent State University Experimental Archaeology Laboratory. There was a more efficient way to introduce these two people, but I didn't come up with it. So, um, so Metin, maybe get us started here. I mean, you're doing a kind of reverse engineering here, right? You're you're taking maybe something that we have artifacts of and then trying to figure out how somebody made it X thousand years ago. Yeah, that's exactly right. And reverse engineering is, uh, I think, the best way to describe experimental archaeology, where we want to understand how these really old tools were made and and how they worked. And and unlike maybe more historical sciences where they have texts or even videos or photographs, uh, we don't have any of that stuff in the prehistoric record. So the only way we can figure out how all this really old stuff works is by making it and using it ourselves. Right. So, I mean, the good news is nobody's going to show up and go, that's not how we did it. That's right. You've got that wrong. Um, but I, I'm also wondering, how far back do you go? I mean, are we going back all the way to, to the Paleolithic era to, you know, lower Paleolithic, as they say? Yeah. So we've recreated uh, ancient technologies going back to the very first stone tools over three million years ago. Um, and then we will continue all the way to um, cultures just before European contact in uh, prehistoric North America. Right. So, um, and, and Michelle, I'm very interested to know if the, like the undergraduates, the, the um, incoming class people have to like go out and stand in a field and pretend to be glyptodons while you guys hunt them with spears that you just made. Because um, that, um, like, yeah, that seems like a very tough form of hazing. Yeah, that would be rough. I mean, we do take them out in the field if they want to. And we do uh, Adelaide Day for all the students. And they, they, they love it. Um, I often have them compare what it's like to throw a heavy spear, um, something that would that would have happened maybe 400,000 years ago, uh, versus using an Adelaide, which is a spear thrower, which we know from at least the Upper Paleolithic. Um, and that's usually a really fun hands-on experience for them. And I think they're really surprised at the benefits offered by the invention of a spear thrower. So yeah, we use foam targets usually. No, uh, no one ever gets hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your story. But um, yeah, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. So Michelle, I mean, another part of this is when I mean it's it's like watching a video of all this, which I did, is fascinating because when when I think of artifacts like this, when I think of things that I would go to a museum and look at the actual artifacts, they're incredibly precious and have to be handled that way. What you guys are doing is making a close approximation of these things. But then you are throwing it at trees because you, and like I watched this one thing where somebody threw a spear and it broke and that was good, right? Because you wanted to know how it broke. Say some more about that. Um, Yeah. So I think the video you might've seen uh, was actually on. Atlas Obscuro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so uh, we went out and threw some atolatals and he did hit a tree with it. It was a great shot. Actually, I don't know if he was meaning to hit a tree, but he did. <laughs> um, and it stuck in perfectly and left a really nice impact scar on the stone tool. Um, so that's really what we're trying to get at. What was it like to use these things? What 
do the breakage patterns tell us about what people were doing in the past? Because in the end of the day, we look at artifacts, but we're really trying to understand human behavior and how they made these things, how they use these things, um, and eventually how these tools changed over time. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. So yeah, it's fun, but we really get a lot of good information out of doing the experiments. Right. So Metten, I mean, you know, throwing spears is really fun, but a lot of the stuff that you do is really painstaking work. And so I think now is the time for you to explain to us about flint napping. Uh, that's K-N-A-P-P-I-N-G, not going to sleep with a piece of flint. Oh, so how do you do this? Yeah. So flint napping is the, the process of, of making stone tools uh, via flaking or chipping. And so a lot of people think that stone tool making, whether you're making an arrowhead or an axe or something like that, because it's stone, you have to use a lot of power and you're just really you know, banging on these rocks. But flint napping really is all about finesse and angles. And, and as long as you can understand how particular rocks break, it's actually one of the most relaxing things that you can do uh, <laughs> once you've mastered the technique. And, and so what we do, though, is we, we recreate different arrowheads or spearheads or, or anything like that. And then we can figure out how different styles work in different ways. So some arrowheads penetrate a target better. Some arrowheads are more durable. Some arrowheads may have certain aerodynamic qualities. And by understanding like how all this stuff is made and functioned, they serve as models for uh, comparisons to the artifacts that we actually dig up. And so for the last 150 years, archaeologists have been digging up all sorts of arrowheads and stone tools and sort of just proclaiming, oh, this kind of stone tool was used for this purpose. And I think at some point, both Michelle and I just looked at each other and said, well, how do you know that? How do you know that a stone tool was used in that way or that stone tool worked better than another stone tool? And then it just occurs to folks who do experimental archeology span that, well, you can test these sort of pro proclamations from the last hundred years by using and testing these things ourselves in, in very sophisticated uh, either ballistics tests or engineering tests. All right. So, Michelle, we have a little slogan here on this show. It's uh, mm -hmm. Neanderthals rule, other hominins drool. Uh, probably <laughs> probably literally drool. Um, but, uh, I mean, this is another really interesting question, right? You've got sort of different kinds of hominins running around making different kinds of tools. And I'm kind of a, I have a lot of Neanderthal DNA. I'm a Neanderthal activist. Uh, I'm kind of tired of hearing some of the stuff that gets said about us. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is another opportunity that you have, right? Is, all right, who's making what tools and who's who's as good at it as or or worse at it than anybody else and give a kind of sense of what you learn about that um i think overall uh what we do tends to just shed light on how sophisticated and intelligent our ancestors were whether it's a neanderthal or even homo erectus um, they were doing very sophisticated techniques to make these tools there's a lot of um you know abstract thought in designing something in your head and then producing it. You're essentially almost making a sculpture out of a rock, um, which is very interesting and difficult to do. So I think one of the main things, and it's exciting for me, is to see my students understand uh, how amazing it was that people were able to do this in the past and how they were able to invent uh, different technologies over time, whether it's Neanderthals who figured out how to you know, make bitumen essentially or do controlled fire to heat treat 
a stick to make it more durable, um, you know, that's actually quite sophisticated and difficult to do. So I think there's something exciting about figuring out how people did these things, you know, 100,000 years ago or beyond, and sharing that with the public or students in a very tangible hands-on way. So um, yeah, I think it's great. So um, I'm also thinking, uh, Michelle, that there's a way in which um, I don't know if empathy is the right word, but I mean, doing this kind of stuff, I mean, this is why it's part of a show that we're doing on historical reenactment. You are, in a way, putting yourself uh, in, I guess, not necessarily in the shoes of, of, a, of a prehistoric person, but you're putting them in their, in a place where they were. And can you say a little bit about that? I mean, does it help you kind of psychologically align with this whole period that you're thinking about? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, as anthropologists, we tend to, you know, obviously we admire and adore everyone in the past, but I do think there tends to be amongst the public this idea that people in the past were, you know, primitive, which is not a good word to use, but it gets used all the time. And I do think that just being able to do these things in a hands-on way connects you to just the mind, perhaps, of people in the past. Um, some things that look really easy are actually quite hard, um, like flint napping. It's very difficult to learn. Whereas other things that we perceive as being super complex or complicated, like uh, working with early copper, which is something that I do, it's actually quite easy. Um, students have learned how to make metal arrowheads within about 45 minutes. So uh, I think sort of just it adjusts how you conceptualize these things in the past. Um, and rather than just having this gut reaction of, oh, that was easy and simplistic versus, oh, this is super sophisticated and sort of progressive um, is, is something that you can glean, I think, from doing these things yourself and having that experience of producing these tools. So, Metton, I don't know how widespread the um, activities uh, involved in experimental archaeology are, but I'm guessing it's sort of a growth field in the sense that gradually we're going to start, you know, running out of artifacts to find. Um, so is this, in fact, sort of a little bit of the future of archaeology as we will know it? Yeah, 100%. In fact, there's a paper published by um, the archaeologist Todd Suravel and colleagues in 2017 that was entitled The End of Archaeological Discovery. And in that paper, they do some very sophisticated modeling, and they actually show that we are, in for all intents and purposes, running out of archaeological sites. Uh, on top of that, um, archaeology fieldwork can be expensive. Um, and there's really important ethical and moral uh, decisions to be made as to whether sites should be dug up. And when they're dug up, you have to make sure that you've got indigenous partners that are helping you uh, and involved in that research if the research is going forward. So for all these reasons, like traditional archaeology, I think um, it's not on the way out, but it's it's certainly not the future. And, and I think what we're seeing is that experimental archaeology, recreating all these artifacts that have been dug up over the last 150 years, is the future. Um, it's, it's relatively inexpensive to do. Um, we are learning all sorts of things. Our, our lab publishes 15 to 20 papers a year simply because there is so much low-hanging fruit. Um, and students get, to expo get exposed to art, engineering, mathematics, anthropology. Uh, experimental archaeology really is sort of the, the a cornucopia of all sorts of di different disciplines. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a growth field. 
So, Mitten, I have to ask you about one other thing, and I apologize for asking about it, but let's face it, you're never going to do an interview for the rest of your life where somebody doesn't ask you about this, and 50 years from now or 80 years from now, it's going to be the lead in your New York Times obituary. So let's talk about the poop knife. All right, yeah. So, um, And also, uh, Dr. Becker was a co-author and participant <laughs> in that study as well. So I'm not, I'm not I, I, I noticed she, she didn't leap to lay claim to that somehow. Yeah, yeah. Like I noticed she, she didn't really spring in there and say, hey, what about me and the poop knife? Yeah. Oh, this, is, this is a story that um, I heard for the first time on NPR when I was 16 years old. It was on the Diane Reem show. And uh, the anthropologist and ethnobotanist Wade Davis had just published a book in 1996 called Shadows in the Sun. And in that story, he talks about an Inuit man who was in a survival situation and had no tools and, and so basically defecated into his own hands. And because he was in the Canadian Arctic, as his feces froze, he honed it into the shape of a knife. Uh, and he was able to kill a dog and butcher that dog with that poop knife, uh, turned the dog's rib cage into a sled, turned the dog's hide into a harness, and he harnessed another dog and sped off into the night. And uh, I heard that story um, when... And you thought, how hard could it be? Well, what I thought was at, when I was 16 years old, hearing this story in 1996, anthropology is amazing. And so uh, little did I know, 20 years later, I'd be co-director of this amazing lab we have here at Kent State. And I was thinking of our next project to do in the lab. And I remember texting Dr. Beber and just saying, hey, I've got a great idea for our project. And she wrote back, well, what is it? And all I said was, do you remember the Wade Davis story? And then there was silence. And then I see the little text dots and she writes back, <laughs> oh my God. Um, Cause and so, I did. <laughs> and so, cause she, she can sort of predict, I think what I'm thinking most of the time. And, and so what we did was we thought this is a great urban legend because if you go online, this story of the poop knife has really just exploded. Um, I'm sorry for that word, but has exploded uh, all over the internet and people just accept it as fact. And, and there's, if you have a chance to look at the actual paper, we document why there's reasons to believe that maybe it didn't occur. But one piece of evidence that questions it would be, does a poop knife actually work? And so uh, we went on some uh, very strict uh, diets that would be consistent with an Arctic diet. And we produced the necessary raw materials and actually then uh, conducted a butchery experiment uh, with all the ethical approvals from Kent State, of course, although they were a little confused. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and so we, we showed scientifically that uh, given the conditions in our study that uh, a knife manufactured from frozen human feces uh, does not work. Um, you did win some kind of Ig Nobel award for this, correct? Well, the Ig Nobel Prize awards are for um, the funniest science, and it's, it's for uh, science that first... Uh, makes you laugh and then makes you think. And they've been going on for decades. Um, and so uh, so we were very honored to have won uh, the 2020 Ig Nobel for material science um, for our, our poop knife study. Well, listen, uh, first of all, uh, Mitten Aaron and Michelle Beber, both uh, co-directors of the Kent State University Experimental Archaeology Laboratory. Go Golden Flashes. Uh, and uh, thanks for being with us today. We are going to head into our final segment, which I don't think has any connection to Kent State. But who knows? Maybe everybody went there or something. We'll find out. Such and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath 
baby And it keeps it uh, out of sight You know when that shark bite Will it All right, we are back. Time to do some thank yous, starting with Cat Pastor, our technical producer, the one playing all the music and the clips and the guests and everything. Uh, we are also produced in this particular episode by our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Uh, and, of course, it's all hands-on deck here. So Jonathan McPants has been running around making sure the music is just right. It even kind of created a version of the Hamilton tune we opened with that doesn't really exist independently of him. Uh, all right. So in our final segment, we're going to go back to the more conventional ideas about what reenacting is, historical reenacting. With us, I sort of teased this before, Ian Graves is a tailor and owner of Royal Blue Traders, specializing in the American Revolutionary War, the clothing of the American Revolutionary War. Also with us, J.R. Hardman, an associate professor at PBS Utah and a Civil War reenactor who is directing and producing a documentary titled Reenactress. So, um, Ian, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, you, uh, you might have heard uh, Brad talking at the beginning, uh, too, about uh, stitch counters, I think they're called, the people who really are fussy about how things have to be, even right down to their garments. I, I would assume that's a little bit of your clientele, right? People who really feel like they need to get the, the waistcoat or something right. Yeah, that's that's what I do. I make things historically accurately and I do things only by hand. So I actually really don't use a sewing machine. So I do literally sit there and count the stitches. Right. And it's there's sort of a commonality between that and the thing we just talked about with the uh, archaeological reenactors. People who are in your business, you know, as you say, you could use a sewing machine, but that kind of wrecks the idea. You're trying to make it more or less the way that it was made. I also read about, I mean, there's one of your and somebody else in your business, John Townsend, making a wooden whisk and insisting on getting the right kind of birch twigs in Michigan where the right kind of trees grow and all this kind of stuff. You guys, as much as you can, are I guess, not just making it look right, but making it in a way that kind of parallels how it was made? Yeah, we, we, we hold the material culture of the hobby to be very serious. So we, we do things as accurately as possible. We use the right threads. Uh, we so, I mean, uh, we use mohair threads for buttonholes, uh, silk threads for buttonholes, linen thread to sew things together. It is very meticulous. There's mills in England that are actually reproducing authentic fabric for the American Revolutionary War period uniforms. Like we, we, we really go in all in on it to make it as accurate as possible. And, and so, I don't know, I mean, just price range here a little bit. I mean, this can't, the, the kind of work that you're talking about, the kind of curational edge that this whole project has, uh, it's labor intensive for you. It can't possibly be cheap. I mean, I don't know, let's say I, I want a coat like the ones I see in, in Hamilton or something. What's that going to run me? Uh, I just did a batch of uniforms for a unit, a, a group, the 10th Regiment of Foot, based in Massachusetts, and I did a coat for a sergeant, and it was something around $1,500 just for the coat itself, I believe is what I charged him, between fabric and buttons and uh, the buttonhole twist, the uh, the braid that went around the buttonholes as well. Like, it, it was about $1,500 for the coat and that, my labor. That actually sounds pretty reasonable. I, I was actually guessing higher numbers than that. So, well, um, I did do a coat for a uh, um, uh, the USS Constitution for their Marine Corps volunteers on board. Uh, it was their officer coat, and that one was about $2,200 for the coat with, with fabric and all, all the above. Yeah. So, um, 
I'm just curious. How did you wind up doing this? How did you this wind up being a, a field for you? It isn't something you can very easily prepare yourself for, or go to a school for. Uh, well, I started when I was about 11, and I went to a local historical house's open open house day, and there was this guy in a red coat, and I said, "What was that?" And he said, "I'm a red coat." And I said, "How can I do that?" And then I started reenacting. I, I got my family into it. And then I just started sewing when I was at university because I preferred doing that to university because I had grown up in universities because my parents are both teachers. All right. So, so I just sewing. yeah. So I don't know. I feel like there's some kind of joke here. Like I could have the pants ready for you by 1775. The coat is going to take till 1777. So I've made that joke a few times. Oh, you yeah. made it. Okay. Yeah. So I feel better either. I feel better or worse about making it then. So, but, but to that point, there is variation, right? There's variation within a historical arc, uh, within the arc of the American Revolution. The clothes they're wearing in 1775 are probably different from 1778. They are, yeah. The, the British Army in particular did it, went through a lot of changes. So when I make a coat for somebody in the British Army, like a red coat, a very important part of that is what year? Are we doing this 1775? Are we doing 1781? Uh, what campaign are you with? Are you with Burgoyne? Are you with Clinton? Are you with uh, Howe? All of this matters a lot because the, the type of leg wear, whether it be gaitered trousers or straight trousers or breeches, uh, style of your gaiters, uh, how cut down is your coat, all things like that. It, it matters a lot. And, and the uniform is very massively. So there's a lot of research that goes in to make sure you do this about as correct as is humanly possible. So let me bring uh, J.R. Hardman into this conversation. Uh, as I said, J.R. Hardman is uh, in the process uh, of making a documentary uh, called Reenactress. Um, so, J.R. Hardman, first of all, I mean, the title's a little bit of a giveaway. You're really interested in the roles of women, the kinds of things that women wind up doing within this subculture. Tell us a little bit more about that. So, my film focuses mostly on the Civil War era. Um, but I have explored a little bit of other war eras. Um, I think something that maybe people don't all know is that women have served in military roles in every American war that has been fought by American soldiers. In the Civil War, most of the women who served in military roles were actually disguising themselves as men. So there's some authenticity concerns surrounding that. Um, the participation of women in military roles isn't always extremely well accepted in the hobby. And that's a lot of what my film explores is what does it mean to be physically authentic and what does it mean to create an authentic experience? So, so this is, uh, is the film pretty specifically oriented towards that? You're not interested in women, women representing the United States Sanitary Commission or something like that? I think Brad referred to that in uh, our, our first segment. So I have uh, done some research on women in uh, medical roles um, and women who were serving openly as women. Um, but most of my film is focused specifically on women who were soldiers. So, you know, I mean, I, I was talking to Brad Reefer at the beginning of the show about because everything seems to be 
contested ground these days. Uh, and particularly, you know, we're less able at times to even have agreed upon narratives either about the present or the past uh, from which we can we can either build consensus or not. And I'm wondering about this, too. You're you're talking about something that might, in fact, clash with some dude's idea of what the Civil War was. Uh, and I'm wondering if you do get pushback about that. Or if they get, if the women get pushback about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm participating in the hobby as a reenactor in a military role. And we definitely get pushback. A lot of it's actually surrounding the online community. And so a lot of the pushback that we get is from completely random strangers that have never met us and have never been on the field with us. Um, but I think that there is a tendency amongst people who are trying to be as historically authentic as possible to say by having a woman present and by having a woman portraying a man, it breaks the illusion that what we're doing is 100% authentic. However, from a theatrical standpoint, People have been doing gender bending in theatrical roles and the audience has bought it for centuries. You can think about Shakespearean times when men were portraying women on stage and women were never on stage. So I think that there's a lot of elements that go into making the experience feel authentic. And I think as a woman or as a person of color portraying maybe somebody that wasn't the same ethnicity as you are, there is a way to do method acting surrounding the experience. And there is a way to try to envision yourself as being like a person, even if you are not physically matching that person exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, Ian, I want to come back to you for just a second here. We're almost out of time. But, um, you know, I actually am seriously wondering. I mean, the American Revolutionary War is your uh, is your period. Uh, and you sometimes do stuff uh, involving the French army under Rochambeau. I'm just wondering, I mean, was Hamilton kind of a big thing in, in the world of reenactors or or maybe even pushing a new wave of reenactors towards this? You see all this on stage. You see the costumes. You see all this stuff. I would imagine it would be would get people kind of excited. It did get a lot of people really excited. We did get a lot of um, we I my own unit didn't get a lot of recruits because of it. But we did get a lot of questions about, oh, you're French. And they actually understood that the French were here. Uh, so it, it did get a new interest in historical interpretation and, and the American Revolution. It did also spur a lot of new members into the hobby, too, which was really nice. Right. And and I mean, since you do work, I guess, on the French costumes must be their own challenge, right? Just even in terms of trying to recreate something like that. Oh, yeah. The French army is very different than any other army in Europe. Uh, it, it's all white. So all I mean, uh, the, the fabric is all white. Uh, you have a white coat, you have white breeches, white waistcoat, white gaiters. So uh, keeping everything clean is actually quite uh, quite hard. But you actually find that things come out of wool pretty easily. Uh, but it's, it's very different than British Army or American Army or even American civilian, which I, is very fun to interpret that and discover it. Yeah, it does sound very cool. All right. Ian Graves, uh, tailor and owner of Royal Blue Traders. Start uh, ordering your Christmas presents or something. Uh, they specialize. He specializes in American Revolutionary War clothing. J.R. Hardman, an associate producer at PBS Utah and a Civil War reenactor, is producing and directing documentary titled Reenactress. Through the world I'll 
Ciao.